Hi, everybody. You are listening to The Wise Woman Podcast brought to you by me, Erin Rachel Doppelt. I am a spiritual psychology and meditation teacher, online business coach, and a guide for those who desire to live their most aligned, soul authentic, and nourishing life, which truly is a unique code, a unique formula for every single person. I spent my 20s living in Israel, India, throughout Europe and Asia, and I have my master's in clinical psychology and education from Columbia University. Everything I share with you is rooted in Eastern ritual, rooted in Western psychology, and has supported thousands of my clients and myself heal, align, and grow. I'm currently writing my first book all about connecting to your inner guru. I can't wait to share it with you all about connecting to your inner, most authentic, intuitive voice. This podcast features many solo episodes with me, yours truly, and also many friends and wellness leaders that are here to inspire, guide, and educate. May you get what you need out of this podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Wise Woman Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Sheila Nazarian, the truly one of the, the most inspiring women I've ever had the honor to talk to. Dr. Nazarian is best known for her hit Netflix show, Skin Decisions. She is a board-certified plastic surgeon, a mother, an entrepreneur, an activist. Truly inspiring. We talk about so many different things, perfectionism, what activism looks like for her day to day, how she really embodies the phrase, she who has it all. I found this to be a deeply inspiring episode. I'm so excited to share it with you. Thank you all for being here. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Wise Woman Podcast. I'm so ecstatic about today's guest, truly someone I admire so deeply, Dr. Sheila Nazarian. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Erin. I'm looking forward to our talk. Me too. Me too. I'm like really cheesing. You are the most amazing. You're a mother, you're an entrepreneur, an activist, a board certified plastic surgeon. I mean, you're really doing all, all the things. How did this even come to be? How did you know that you wanted to move forward into the plastic surgery world? So I actually did wood shop in the fourth grade and I really just <laughs> loved it. I think I was the only girl. I almost dropped it. Um, but I just really love like, you know, the mathematics of it, the design of it. Um, and then actually building it with my hands. I was always kind of crafty and artsy. Um, so I just said, okay, I'm either going to be an architect or an orthopedic surgeon because it was all hammers and nails and, and fun stuff. And I, so I started like really looking into those in high school, early college. And I realized like architects, they don't actually build it themselves. So maybe not that. And I started following an orthopedic surgeon and it was not as creative as I had hoped. Definitely hammers and nails. But uh, then somebody said, why don't you look into plastic surgery? And so I started, you know, shadowing a plastic surgeon and really loved it and kind of never looked back. That's amazing. And maybe a lot of you are more familiar with Dr. Nazarian's work on your Netflix show, Skin Decision. How did, what was that like? How did that even come to be? 
So that was always my goal. Um, I was a dancer. I was in theater. Um, I sang, you know, uh, and so I always wanted my own show. Um, I feel very comfortable on camera. And I just knew that that was my unique way of sort of educating the masses. And that was always really gratifying to me, not just helping one person at a time. That's great too. But really just affecting the masses was a lot more like purposeful to me. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to show when I first graduated from residency, I started making a bunch of YouTube videos. Um, I started getting a ton of press just because nobody else was really making videos at that time. And, um, when you Google something, you get that row of YouTube videos and it was like all me. So I never had a publicist PR, any of that, but I was getting tons of TV shows and interview requests. Um, and that kind of became my video resume. And so we pitched a few shows, um, the third one was like a year commitment, didn't get picked up. Um, but one of the producers from that was working on skin decision. So when that opportunity presented itself, he's like, go get Nazarian. And so that's kind of how that happened. And it was an amazing experience. I was freaking exhausted. It was like 4.30 in the morning to like 8.30 at night, um, at least three days a week, in addition to my practice and the kids and um all of that, but it was a really great experience. I loved it. We got nominated for an Emmy, which was really cool, but kind of crappy because it happened during COVID. So I didn't get to do the whole red carpet thing. It was in my kitchen. I was sitting in my kitchen. (laughs) But um, yeah, no, so it was, it was uh, really gratifying in the sense that I think it was the first plastic surgery show that wasn't kind of a circus, you know, it wasn't demeaning in any way to the patients. It was just really a docu style, um, kind of following them, what are the reasons why they're doing it, what happened, what are their traumas, um, what are they hoping to achieve, and then kind of following them through that journey. So I think it gave a lot of people kind of permission to to, to consider it more self-care rather than vanity, um, and also to sort of allow themselves to take that step for themselves in the sense that, okay, this isn't a selfish thing. If I look better or I get over this insecurity or I erase this trauma, I'm going to do better in the world because it won't be holding me back anymore. So it it did kind of change the landscape of plastic surgery. And, you know, even me kind of being the envelope pusher in my industry when it comes to social media or being out there, um, it really helped me gain a lot of acceptance within my colleagues too, because once it kind of elevated the entire industry, people were like, okay, maybe she's okay. What I love so much about your work in this industry is it's the avenue of healing. Like it's another past pathway to heal. hundred percent. Really is. And it's so much deeper. I always say I'm a therapist with a knife. I love that. I love that in uh, researching you, even though I, I knew a lot about you um, in, in preparation for this call, I read your reviews, like of all, like a lot of your past clients And they just have the most loving, that's what they say. Like you listen, you show up, you're really present with them. And I think that's the greatest testimonial of all. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you got to go into this because you want to help people. Um, And it's, and I always tell my colleagues, it's okay if this isn't the only way you help people. It's okay if, you know, being a surgeon isn't like 100% satisfaction. Maybe you want to be an entrepreneur too. Maybe you want to you know, start a shoe, shoe brand, maybe you want to, you know, have kids, like everything's okay, you can express yourself and be fulfilled by multiple things. 
And I think because I did that from a, from very early on, even though that wasn't really like accepted, it was kind of like, we gave you the opportunity to become a surgeon. Now go operate until you die, you know, and nothing else should get in the way of you operating more, more, more. And so that was sort of the environment, which I was trained, but I just said, you know what, I want a lot of things. And again, stepping outside of that path wasn't very accepted in the beginning, but I always try to tell my students and colleagues, like, it's okay if you aren't hundred percent satisfied by just being a surgeon, nor should you be, you know, I feel like when you put all your eggs in a basket, let's say one day, God forbid, you can't operate anymore. Where are you going to get your self-worth from? You know, I say that to everybody with every job. You, you shouldn't put all of your eggs into one basket and get self-worth and purpose from one thing. You should get it from many things uh, so that you kind of are diversified <laughs> Yeah, in your purpose. And society always tries to put us in like a super specific box. You're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're an mm-hmm. entrepreneur, but we're so many things at once. What does day-to-day look like for you? Um, I think that I kind of learned how to organize my uh, day and my uh, brain energy in high school. I went to kind of a competitive high school and I was doing a lot of things, but I realized, you know, there's certain times where you have to give 100% brain energy to what you're doing at that moment and then switch it off and move to the next. And there's other times where it's more, you know, busy work where you can be thinking of other things and it's the same in the OR, you know. There's times when you move fast through a case and there are times where you know, okay, there's a nerve here. I need to slow down. And and so it's kind of like a life efficiency that I learned in high school um, where I am able to get a lot done in a day um, efficiently and give 100% attention when 100% attention is needed and deserved, but multitask when um, it's okay to multitask as well. So I get a lot done in a day. Usually it's getting up um, pretty early, getting some work done or maybe stretching or sort of um, deciding what I need my personal assistant to do that day or my COO to get it done that week or whatever it is. But Mondays I do podcasts. I do meetings with my team members from all five businesses. Um, I do interviews um, and also just like planning for the week. Tuesdays I operate. Wednesdays, I do virtual consults from home. Thursdays, I'm in office hours where it's lasers, injectables, things like that. And then Fridays, I operate. And the weekends, I'm off. So usually bar mitzvahs these days. I love that. Like three a weekend. (laughs) I love your Instagram. You're you're like one of the first accounts that pops up on my Instagram. You had a bar mitzvah this past weekend. We did. It was so beautiful (laughs) too. There was lots of Israeli flags. Um, It's just, it was, it was lovely. So, I mean, amazing segue into the next topic, your connection. I mean, you have this strong Jewish and Zionistic and connection to Israel. What is your relationship to Israel? How did you become so close to the land? Let me tell you, like growing up, we weren't that religious. We were more like superstitious, I would say, as a lot of like Persian Jews are. Um, But, you know, there was we, we, you know, we're we had to leave Iran. Um, We left in 1985 post-revolution because there was discrimination. There was oppression. We couldn't um, practice freely. You never told anyone you were Jewish. You didn't hang up a mezuzah. You didn't like none of that stuff. 
And so once we escaped, I think I got here and I was just trying to like figure out how do I fit in? Oh, I wish I was blonde. I wish I was white, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and then I, I really tried to sort of, you know, with the schooling that I went to, like I went away for college, Persian Jewish girls didn't do that. Like you didn't move out until you were married, um, in my generation. And so, um, that was kind of strange to let your daughter go away to college. Um, especially cause you know, we're like first generation immigrants, right? So very sort of tied down to cultural expectations, but I, I was able to do that. And then I went to a pretty competitive high school as well. And there was like three Persians in the whole school. So I really tried to sort of fit into that mold of American culture and kind of assimilate as much as I could. Um, and then when I got to medical school, even though it was in New York, it was Yeshiva's medical school and there was Persians there. And I remember we used to make um, like traditional Persian food and watch Laker games and, you know, sort of, I, it just felt warm. It felt warm. It felt more familiar. Um, and so that's kind of when I was like, okay, this is like culturally easier. I actually might marry a Persian. We'll see, you know, <laughs> I love it. Um, and I think while there's, you know, in any culture, right. There's things that like just are very frustrating, but there's things that are very beautiful. So if I went, went to the mall with my male cousin, my mom would get a phone call. Oh my God, I saw your daughter at the mall with a boy. Um, whereas at a Persian funeral, there's like minimum 300 people at every funeral, right. There's just so much support in the community. So I feel like everything has its like, you know, pros and cons, but, um, I don't know. I feel like I just sort of came back to that a little bit, um, after kind of trying to fit in outside of my culture. So. It's the journey of trying to fit into this American box and then feeling so grateful that you, we, we actually are different. And it's, yeah, I mean, like I feel very like, rooted in, 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 um, that sort of not just culture. It's, it's interesting too, because I'll tell you, I, I almost feel more connected to Israel than I do Iran. Um, and I think it's because of the trauma that we had in Iran. Um, I feel very culturally like Persian Jewish, but as far as a land that I feel like I have to defend and I feel very spiritual connected to it's Israel because that's our, A, our homeland and B, it's a place that is always going to be there for us, God willing. Whereas Iran, I have to be honest, and I've really been soul searching, right? Because of all the stuff happening in Iran right, right. now, like while on the one hand, like every time we taste like a really great organic fruit in America, all of like the older people in our family, like, oh my God, it tastes just like the orchards in Iran. Right. So there's that kind of messaging. But then there's also if you ask the elders, do you ever want to go back? They're like, no, I never want to go back you know? <laughs> just because of like how we were treated. So I feel like now with what's happening in Iran, it's kind of making me question, like, where do I fit in and how how much do I feel spiritually and at my core values for Iran? So it's kind of I don't know, it's making me reevaluate. I mean, obviously the people, you know, you feel for them just as a, you know, women's rights issue and like human rights issue. But now I, I remember when the, when this sort of like recent revolution started, I was at a bar mitzvah and, I, and they played Persian music and it hit me different. Like I felt it more. Whereas before then I, I sort of felt like they abandoned me and they abandoned the Jews. 
And, you know, so many people had to leave and leave everything and leave a very comfortable life because of, you know, the sort of Islamic Republic and, and how the Jews were treated. So it's kind of like, I don't know, it's forcing me to think about it a little bit now, whereas before I was just like, you know, Iran's kind of a lost cause. You know, our homeland is is this, this is, you know, this is, I was ousted from there. This is a place that will always take care of me. And that's, I think that's a big issue. But now with everything happening in Iran, I feel like a, a little more connected, I think. That is so interesting. My best friend is also from Iran and her family went to Israel instead of the States. How did your family choose that they came to New York? Yeah. So, um, we, my dad said he was going to some medical meeting. He went to Vienna and he stayed there. Um, and then my mom, my sister and I escaped into Pakistan, um, you know, through the desert. Wow. And then we were there for three months waiting for visas. Um, my dad was trying to help get visas through Vienna. But the reason why they did that is because if both my parents um, were escaping with us and we were caught, they would obviously do whatever they wanted to do to my parents and who would take care of us. So what they did is my dad just said, oh, I'm going to go to a medical conference, left our passports with the government. And if me, my mom and my sister would have been caught, my, my dad would have been like, oh, my wife and I were having problems. She was trying to escape. You know what I mean? So then my dad could come back and sort of take care of me and my sister. So that was sort of the thinking. Um, but we Brilliant. were, yeah, we were away from my dad for three months, finally got visas, uh, reunited in Vienna. We were there for about a month. And then we had family in New York and Los Angeles. So we first flew to New York. I think it was winter and my parents were like, okay, no. So we, <laughs> we flew to LA and kind of settled there. But to this day, half my family is in New York. Have you taken your kids to Iran? You can't. No, you can't. I'm on some list at this point. Um, or I don't know. I mean, I even know like people who aren't very vocal and like, you know, have with organizations gone to Iran and been detained in the airport for, you know, half a day. It's scary. Like there's no like rhyme or reason there. Right. So I would never without regime change, I would not go back. No. And that's why you feel another layer connected to Israel. Right. So I mean, how often do you go? So it's interesting. Um, I went with my mom when I was 13. We did a, just, just the two of us. We went, it was kind of like my bat mitzvah, you know, I went to the wall, somebody said a prayer above my head and that was my bat mitzvah. <laughs> I, I, I want to take like adult actual bat mitzvah classes now. Um, but I never really had like the formal reading and all of that. Um, and a lot of Persian Jews just did that. It's like my, my husband, same thing, you know, my cousin, same thing. Um, and so I was there when I was 13. Then I was a Brothman fellow when I was 16. So I got to spend wow. six weeks there. And then I hadn't been back for 26 years um, until this last summer. Um, I was supposed to go for my daughter's bar mitzvah a couple of years ago, COVID. I was supposed to go last year for my son's bar mitzvah, COVID. So we finally made it back um, there. Uh, and it was amazing. And I'll tell you, it has come along so far. Like when I was there, when I was 16, Tel Aviv was flat. There was no buildings. It was literally like a beach shack kind of situation. Um, and the archaeological advancements have been huge. So this time when I went back, I was like, oh my God, everything in the Torah actually happened. Whereas before I just thought there are other stories we learned from these stories. But this time when I went back, they're like, here's archaeological evidence of this and that. And I was like, oh my God. I have to keep Shabbat. <laughs> like, I love that reaction. I have to become more observant. That's yes. amazing. 
Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, we go, we ran the marathon, the Jerusalem marathon there in March. My husband and I, we like separately, maybe uh, similar to you, I married who my mom wanted me to marry. It's like I was living on the other side of the world. And she's like, I think you would like Jeff and Mindy's son, you know, same synagogue, same high school. He looks, he looks Persian Jewish. He's very hairy, which like I love. He's just like the best. But we're in Israel all the time, and you're absolutely right. It's like I I can't believe it's the Middle East. Like people who have never been, they have no idea what this land can hold. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And um, I took my kids, they had never been. And, you know, they went to a Jewish day school. So they, they got to actually speak Hebrew and kind of see the places where they studied. Um, and I got to tell you, Tel Aviv, they were unimpressed. Um, huh. uh, They're they like, Mom, why did we fly 16 hours to go to the beach? Like we live in LA. Um, but Jerusalem was amazing. And um, it was my favorite place, my kids' favorite place. It was just tons of connection and beauty and history. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I feel like, uh, when it comes to social media and activism, um, I couldn't, I could never stand injustice and lies in my whole life. I don't know. I was just very like vocal about that. And when I saw my colleagues just like lying because clearly they're ignorant or they've been brainwashed since they were young, which, you know, I love to bring out into the light. I think that we have to make the correct diagnosis to apply the, the correct treatment. And so I don't like to hide things and say, oh, I'm not going to go, you know, check out this lump in my breast because I might hear the C word. Like, no, you, you go, you get it checked out, you get that biopsy, you get the right diagnosis. So then you can apply the correct treatment. And just like cancer, I think anti-Semitism is a cancer and we have to let it out into the light. So all these people speaking up, saying what they think. I'm all for free speech. Let them say it, let them lay it out so that we have the opportunity, not just to educate them, but to educate the world. That is how I found you because you, you say the thing. And I mean, I like, I remember your exact post. It's if you're going to stay silent about terrorists, murdering, murdering Jews, stay silent when Israel defends itself. And that went, that broke the internet. It did. It, went, it was crazy. One of my, I went to go pick up my daughter from uh, basketball and one of the dads was like, my entire feed is your tweet. <laughs> I was like, really? Um, but no, that did well. And then recently this morning, I think it was 3 a.m. Sometimes I wake up at crazy times, but I did another um, tweet about kind of what's going on right now with uh, some, you know, I don't know, anti-Semitism, miseducation uh, stuff going on right now. And that's what that one's kind of blowing up um, similarly. But I think it's just about um, taking a moment and really understanding where is this coming from and um, not reacting when everyone else is like not reacting, but really finding the right words to say where and also the right educational content to provide and sort of putting it out there and letting people digest it. Um, I've had so many people be like, oh my God, I had no idea. My entire feed was the other side of the story, but because of yeah. your post, I actually went and researched it for myself and thank you so much and blah, blah, blah. How, like I have one tenth of your following on Instagram and, you know, on my little corner of the planet, I feel like I'm also trying to educate. It takes so much gusto. Yeah, it does. Um, I think during the conflict in May, I was spending eight and a half hours a day on my phone. <laughs> wow. 
but um, I called it like iron doming social media, um, uh, and which I think a lot of women did. I think women really actively took that role, which was great to see. Um, but at this point, you know, you gotta, you gotta watch your mental health as you know. Um, and so what I learned is not to necessarily react to every comment, um, and also not to engage because a lot of times they DM you wanting to engage and then they report the chat and then you end up losing your DM capabilities, which happened. Uh, but I just, you know, delete, I restrict, um, I block, um, sometimes I'll put it on blast if it's very offensive, uh, just so people know, okay, let's go, let's go get this person's account shut down. Um, you know, accountability is real. Uh, and again, I'm all for free speech, but I'm also all for accountability. So learned a lot, um, went through some moments of anxiety, uh, but lost a lot of followers, gained a lot of followers. Yeah. But I think, you know, and you know, the thing that you said is in the beginning of sort of, um, we had, we had a pre-podcast prayer, yeah, we- um, uh, <laughs> but you know, I try to stay away from the word, your truth. I it's, it's the truth, you know, you don't get to make up your own version of the truth. There's one truth. You, there, you could be your perception, but, um, I found that, you know, everyone having their version of their truth is not really the truth now, is it? So. So I try to I try to stay real to my core values and speak from my core values and and sort of be in pursuit of the truth. That's beautiful. Something that you keep bringing up is this like you're a truth stayer, right? You call out the bullshit. Mm-hmm. I wonder if well first of all I wonder if you're the first in your lineage to kind of come out and speak these things. I mean, do you feel connected to a grandmother that was also doing something in this trajectory? You're the first of your name. I think the first. Yeah. Like for better or for worse. (laughs) The first of your name. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in in, uh, Persian culture, I think the women are very powerful um, in general. But I think the Persian Jewish trauma... um, is still very fresh because I mean, I'm first generation. I lived it. Right. Uh, and so, and I think also like, you know, Ashkenazi Jewish trauma, I just think our trauma comes from different angles. Like for us, cancel culture was you would disappear or you would never come back or, you know, you would be jailed for no reason, which we're seeing now in Iran. Um, so I'm not that afraid of like what cancel culture is here. Um, I just think you have to give in to cal- cancel culture for it to work. But if you just keep going, you it opens up new doors and new opportunities and pulls people in, into your life that have the same core values. So did people like try to cancel me? Yeah. I mean, I think I lost like 3000 followers in the first like 15 minutes after my first post um, about anti-Semitism. But it just brought so many opportunities and I get to meet you and I, you know, I get to yeah. meet like-minded individuals and we don't agree on everything, but certainly people that at their core values um, are aligned, I think is a very beautiful thing and has brought a lot of meaning to my life. Yeah. And even for everybody who's listening, what I shared before we hopped on is like Dr. Sheila Nazarian, you 
inspire me so deeply. It's even recently this rise of anti-Semitism, which is so devastating. And even as I show up and speak on Instagram, it's like so many attacking DMs, so many attacking comments. And then I'll go to your profile and you're just, you're saying the thing and you're inspiring me. I know if you're inspiring me and I show up and that has a huge ripple effect, it's absolutely life-changing and and especially for our people when it comes to anti-semitism what do you believe you know what is your wish for people like when it comes when this is a theme you know i'm happy it's all coming out i know it scares a lot of people but i don't think it was not there i think it was there it's just that people weren't saying anything and again i think as, as it's coming out it gives us opportunities to talk about it which i think is the first step in healing it But my wish for people is that they find strength to speak up. I don't think ever in Jewish history has it helped our cause to be silent, to try to assimilate, to bury our heads in the sand, to say, oh, that would never happen here. They need me like, you know, and it's happened over and over again. Whereas in Israel, Jewish strength, look at where it's gotten us, you know, Jewish pride, look at where it's gotten us. So I think we need to change And I think the younger generations don't maybe carry the same direct trauma, or maybe they didn't have, you know, a grandmother who survived the Holocaust, or maybe they weren't born in Iran and witnessed, you know, the oppression firsthand. So I think they're a little braver. And I think um, in the vein of, you know, trying to, you know, sort of wipe out racism, this is racism, right? It's racism against Jews. And I like to frame it and sort of give people courage to speak up as well. And I always tell people, you don't have to have a million followers, just whoever you can call out, whether it's at school or a conversation with a friend or whatever it is, do what you can, but be slightly uncomfortable. So if you're slightly uncomfortable, it means you're doing the best you can. But if you're just like, oh, (laughs) this is my comfort zone, then you're not, I don't think you're really pushing yourself to do as much as you can. Yeah, like people pleasing and mm-hmm. sitting in that discomfort. It's so interesting. Do you identify as a perfectionist? I did, but I think plastic surgery actually helped me not be a perfectionist. And I'll tell you why. It's not that I don't want the perfect results, but sometimes when you're operating on people, trying to make things look perfect, you might kill the blood supply to that tissue. So I learned that, you know, it's not about perfectionism at the cost of harm. So it's allowed me to pull it back to the place where it's almost perfect and everything's safe. (laughs) I think that's a really good metaphor. (laughs) It it, it did really help me because I was a perfectionist and I don't think that's, that's very healthy. Yeah. Where do you think you learned that? Do you have siblings? I have an older sister. She's six years older. She's in New York. Nice. But, um, yeah, we're kind of different, uh, but I don't know where, where, I don't know. I was always kind of outspoken, um, to a fault, I think growing up. Um, but I just never felt comfortable sitting in injustice. Yeah. And that's why right now is such an important time for you to be like really well-known. I mean, it's serving so many people. I want to rewind a little bit when it comes to, I just love talking to women about like, you have so many businesses. You are a 
public figure. You are fighting anti-Semitism on an app, a free app on your phone. And you're a mother. Like the how does all of this come to be when it comes to your parenting style or how you spend time with your kids day to day? Um, I never push my kids, but I um to like you have to be this or you have to be this way. I just, you know, set expectations and I'm kind of give them a lot of uh independence and I expect them to rise to the occasion. Um, but you know, I tell them, even if you're, you want to become an artist, great. Got to work hard or, okay. You want to be an entrepreneur. Great. You have to work hard. So I think it's more about the work ethic and doing your best, um, rather than you must do this. Um, but at the same time too, I mean, I was a resident when I had all three of them. And so I was doing 80 hour weeks, every third night in the hospital, just total physical exhaustion. Like would drive home and couldn't get out of the car and have to call my husband to come pull me out kind of thing. Um, so I think in the beginning, they kind of had no choice but to be independent, right? So even to this day, I cook, but a lot of times they're cooking for me. Um, you know, I expect them to wake up in the morning, which, you know, my son doesn't always do that, but we have words. Um, but so, yeah, I don't think it's, you know, perfect. But I will say, you know, there was a, I have a conference um, with a nonprofit that's sort of like business and branding. And one of the speakers came and she said, even if the woman is the primary breadwinner, and this is in America, not Persian, whatever, all of America, even if the woman is the primary breadwinner, 80% of the children and house duties still falls on her, even if the husband is stay at home dad. And so I think that a lot of that stuff does, you know, still follow me, but you got to just get help, takes a village, ask for help, ask for help, ask for help, get good help. Um, and I don't know, I just sort of am like making it through. It's a lot of thoughts, a lot of planning. It's a lot of uh, meetings, but, you know, you do your best and you kind of try to grow and move forward, but you also have to give yourself a lot of grace. And if things don't go the way you want them to go, or you show up at the birthday party when it's ending, not when it started, because you wrote it down wrong, like it is what it is. What do your parents think about all your success? So my mom passed away when I was 16. Um, she had breast cancer. I'm so um, sorry. No, it's okay. I mean, we're very close and I know she's still with me. Like weird stuff happens that I'm like, oh my God, she's still here. Um, my dad is very proud. Um, I don't, you know, like sit down and I'm like, you know, let's talk about it or whatever. But, you know, I know a lot of his friends um, talk to him about it and he has always been very supportive you know, letting his daughter go away to Columbia University when everybody else is like, she's going to come back with a tongue ring and be promiscuous. And lost. <laughs> I love it. But, you know, he always he always said like, yeah, OK, you know, his, his uh, famous line when I got into Columbia, he's like, Hoboro, which means, OK, go. <laughs> OK, go. Hoboro. OK, go. Just go. <laughs> so I think, you know, just him being supportive and, and wanting the best and also not limiting me at all um, in the sense that I'm a girl. Um, if anything, I think they left Iran just to give their two daughters opportunity. And he, they, he, he said, like, the reason why we left is I just looked around. And I was like, there's no growth potential for you guys here. And so we had to go. My God, can you imagine? I mean, look at what you've built already. And you're not even you're like maybe you're just getting started. That's the most I, exciting part. I feel like, yeah, I feel like every year has been very different than the 
year before. That's brilliant. Your husband, you met while you were in New York or he's part of the... So I put down on my to-do list my last year of medical school, get married. And I like... Get married. Yeah, I literally like put a checkbox next to it and I wrote get married. Um, And I just told my family in New York, I'm like, I'm ready. And they're like, okay, five dates a week, like lawyer, doctor, accountant, architect, engineer, you know, whatever. Like a shit off. Like yeah, exactly. Like literally I went on like five dates a week. Um, but I ran into a lot of challenges, you know, like I was dating, I was a medical student, right? So I wasn't a doctor yet. Um, and I was dating a doctor and he's like, if you want to be a dermatologist, we can keep dating. But if you want to be a surgeon, I can't handle it. Um, I was dating a lawyer and he's like, you know, I don't, I, I, was, I really thought about it and I don't want my wedding invitations to say Mr. and doctor. So we can't, we can't keep dating. You know, so like, it was just like a lot of that happening. Um, I don't think the younger generations, uh, have to go through that. Cause I feel like the younger generations, the boys are like, she better work, like contribute. You no, know, like, you know, so I think it's a little different now, but back in the day it was sort of like, you got married. So there would be food on the table and somebody would be taking care of your kids, which I think is, there's tons of value to that. Um, but yeah, no, it was difficult. And so I was, I was in Los Angeles for a month to do my neurology rotation and I, and I was very bored. So I just kept walking down the hall to neurosurgery. And one of the doctors there, we were at lunch and he's like, so what are you looking for? And I kind of told him and he's like, okay, well, I have a friend. He never wants to get married, but you're in town for three more weeks. So you'll have a good time. And I was like, okay. So we went out like eight times in the first 10 days and we were engaged in three months. I, I think that's the most amazing thing ever. And that was like 18 years ago. <laughs> and is he in the medical sphere? Yeah. He's a brain surgeon. Yeah. Oh, he's a- Mm-hmm. I knew that. I researched that. That's amazing. <laughs> Do you bring him into your work? Ever? Yeah. So we actually, it's my office and then our surgery center uh, and then his office. So we're kind of jo- joined by our, our joint surgery center. And so a lot of times I'll be operating and he'll come in and just see how things are going. Um, so it's nice because, you know, if he's got a little break, he'll text me and be like, want to go grab a quick lunch. It's very nice. You definitely needed somebody that could keep up with you and expand with you. I'm yeah. so happy for I you and your kids. I'm so lucky. I almost feel bad for him sometimes because, you know, I, <laughs> a lot of times he's like, just settle down, like, stop thinking, just relax, breathe. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, we can meditate. Do you meditate? I, so I call it productive meditation. It's interesting. Like at my conference one year, we had Chris Jenner keynote and she's the same way, which was hilarious. Um, we both like organize or like fold clothes or like do laundry and we call it productive meditation. So it's like, you're doing something like mindless, you're being productive, but you're also like just letting your mind wander and sort of think about where you're at and where you want to go. And so I, that's my type of meditation is when I'm getting like vacuuming. Yeah. Well, it's active meditation. It's actually, yeah. I mean, it's women. We need to move. We need to open up our shoulders. We need to open up our hips. So like cutting vegetables or even folding laundry. I always I love think cutting washing, vegetables. I love folding yeah. laundry. washing dishes by hand. I You're love, like, re- yeah. Love it. Love all of that. Too. Yeah. It's like the most. I, yeah, I went viral for that. Like, that's the thing. There's so much research on. Is that okay, good? Because I was like, I'm just the only psycho that like doesn't want to sit. I even bought like the, the the pads to sit on. I mean, they're really cute, but like I never sit on them. My dog does. 
That's I'll send you this video. Yeah. There's so much out there. Women, we just do things very different. Do you go to the beach often? I hate the beach. I'm a mountain Jew. I like the mountains. That probably makes sense based off your lineage. Yeah. I like, uh, you know, Tahoe lakes and mountains. That's my, that's my jam. The beach. My husband loves the beach, but. Have you been to like Stable Care meets Ramon in the South of Israel, like in the desert? No. Yeah. You would love it. They just opened this new amazing hotel down there. I'll tell you about it. Yeah. I need to go. Give me all the goods. I will. I'll give you all the goods. You're the coolest in the whole entire world. I so adore you deeply. I'm like really cheering you on from afar, like sending you, sending you so much love. And, um, I always like to kind of close out these episodes. If you like, let's, this goes viral and you can just share your wisdom with everyone around the world. What is a message you would want to share with them? I would say that you should speak to your core values and you can never go wrong for that. So I would say if you come from a place of love and you come from a place of wanting to share your story through your lens, you cannot get canceled for that. You cannot go wrong with that. What I want people to know is if you're always trying to walk this line of what's acceptable today, that line might move. And then you weren't even saying what you actually thought, and now you're in trouble for it 10 years from now. So I think that what I've learned is A, speak to your core values and you can't go wrong, come from a place of love. And I think, you know, I just I just think we we were given this gift of free speech and free thought. And my family left everything to come here to give that to me. And who am I to not honor that? To take up space. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. How can we find you? Ooh, where can you not find me? Um, mm-hmm. I my my big account, I have a million accounts on Instagram, but my big one is um Dr. Sheila Nazarian, Dr. Sheila Nazarian. I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Nazarian, spelled out doctor. Um, and where else? Oh, I'm starting my own podcast, y'all. Um, it's gonna be called The Closet. And it's gonna be from my closet because that's where I go. I have a feeling you probably have a pretty nice closet. It is insane. It is. It's like my own private, like creative, artistic museum of, of just artistic things. So nice shoes. Oh, lots of shoes. Shoe wall. Um, yeah, you guys have to come. I actually, I, I, I positioned the camera in such a way that the mirror is behind me. So you get, get to see almost the whole thing. That's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to be just, it'll, it'll be cute, but we're, you know, discussing um, some serious stuff too, but always trying to, you know, provide some tips um, on the beauty side and kind of keep it light as well. But, you know, definitely getting into those deeper, deeper topics and, uh, and giving people space to maybe say things that they might not say elsewhere. We didn't even talk about beauty at all on this on this whole you know, episode. It's so funny because I feel like that's so old to me. So I did this like big podcast, and he didn't even know why he was bringing me on. I think his team was like, "She's got a lot of followers. Like, just bring her on. She'll promote it. It'll be good for you." So he asked me about like 
this older like Japanese man, right? He asked me about like beauty, like which is like so out of water. And I'm like, this is great, but can we actually like peel the layers of the onion a little bit? And then afterwards he's like, I had no idea that actually I could connect with you and, you know, confessed that he didn't want to bring a plastic surgeon on. But I think that just speaks to the fact that we all have so many layers. And, you know, while he might hear plastic surgeon and think what he's been told it is, you know, maybe he didn't expect that there would be a human under there. That's amazing. And I do think you are unique. I mean, you came into this industry and you're doing, you're she who has it all, right? You have the relationship, the children, the business, the show, you're gorgeous. You're connected to your Judaism and the land. It's all have some of that. I'll have some of that. And I think that's interesting to people. I think that um, it's all about kind of, ooh, sorry, my phone is going crazy. I think, I think it's all about giving yourself permission to sort of explore all the avenues of oneself. And you know that statement that they say you can have it all, but you can't have it all at the same time. I used to believe that when I was like 20s, early 30s, I was like, yeah, that's probably true. But once I became a physician, you know, my kids got a little bit older and I was able to define my own hours. I wasn't employed by, you know, the hospital kind of situation. Now I feel like I do have it all at the same time. And I think it is possible, but I think you have to go through some suffering and make sacrifices initially to get to the place where you can say that. And again, I feel like with the 20 year olds now, they're seeing all these messages on Instagram, like live your best life. Like everything should be manifested right now, you know, and all that stuff. So I feel like they, they kind of lose the message that like, no, you need to suffer a little and maybe learn some things you're not interested in, in order to make you successful in what you, where you want to end up. Go through the process. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to the Wise Woman Podcast brought to you by me, Erin Rachel Doppel. We release new episodes every week. So please make sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review and a loving comment. If you desire to deepen your spiritual connection, immerse yourself in Eastern ritual and Western psychology, learn how to meditate, and find the best formula for you to heal, align, and grow, make sure you are signed up for my free Manifestation Masterclass, Four Sacred Manifestation Rituals, where you can manifest your dream life, your soulmate relationships, platonic or romantic, and reconnect to your highest, most authentic self. You can find the link on my website, erinrachel.pelt.com. That's E-R-I-N-R-A-C-H-E-L. D-O-P-P-E-L-T dot com. If you love this episode, make sure to screenshot it and tag me at Aaron R. Doppelt on Instagram for a chance to win my free spiritual program, Soul Immersion. Thank you all so much for being here. Big love and see you next week.